Section 12 of The Door of the Unreal by Gerald Biss. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Between London and Climping, Part 5. We were approaching the house, and my eyes ran over it with a sense of deep affection, half love of architecture, and half sympathy with Burgess, a masterpiece in miniature, an epitome of tradition but I think what had always fascinated me most was the wide, massive, rather squat front door of 15th century oak, windswept by Sussex sou'westers for close on 400 years and studded with great nails of iron. Round it was a weather-beaten stone arch surmounted by the old climping arms over the door upon a stone shield almost erased by the tooth of time. A bin with three escallops charged upon it between six bull's heads cabossed with the motto Ascendo underneath, supposed to be an example of heraldic wordplay, falsely connecting the name of Sir Burgess de Climping, the Norman founder of the family, with the word climbing. But somehow that afternoon, April 16th, according to my diary, even with the afternoon sun aslant across its mellow brick, it seemed almost to assume some sinister aspect, and the old mullion windows to frown, imagination, of course, and overwrought nerves, ever on the strain beneath a light exterior and cloak of carelessness, but nevertheless hard to shake off. And the unpleasant impression was not lightened of any of its sinister suggestion when the old familiar door was opened with a clanking and the rattle of the chain by the old German-Polish servant Anna Brunolf, whom I had not seen before, a strange figure with her slanting eyes and tousled gray hair, wearing her habitual cape of brown fur. She was not only bizarre in herself and so utterly out of the picture, but there was something about her that gave me a sort of goose-flesh feeling. There was an aura of evil, a repulsion round her to those sensitive to such intangible influences, as I have always been since I can first remember, and she made no effort to welcome us, closing the door behind us, locking it again, and putting up the old chain with an attitude suggestive of hostility. That's one of Anna's fads said Dorothy, trying to speak lightly. It has grown on her through living in wild parts of recent years with my nomadic father. Whiskers had made no effort to follow us in, nor had Anna given him either encouragement or chance, and to Burgess's surprise, when we got home that evening, we found him lying in front of the hall fire, strangely out of spirits and apologetic for his desertion. I made no comment at the time, but felt that there was a special bond of understanding and sympathy between the dog and myself. There was no fire in the old oak-paneled hall with its big open fireplace, which had in the old days blazed with big logs and a cheerful glow of welcome, lighting up the armorial shield over the stone arch, this time striking a richer note with its heraldic colorings, azure, a ben-jewel with the three escallops argent charged upon it, between six bull's heads cabossed ore. There was no reflection from it either, as of old, upon the minstrel gallery in miniature opposite or the old oak staircase, and in the deepening light, through the leaded windows that looked forlorn and cheerless, almost dour. Moreover, without the great fire that had burnt for centuries of winters disguising it, its dampness lay revealed, and it was dank and musty with the suggestion of a charnel house. Again it seemed to me there was a slight, almost imperceptible odor of strange decay, faint, yet to me strangely pungent. There was a blight, a gloom over the whole place, and I could not repress a slight shiver as we found ourselves out of the sunlight. Dorothy seemed to notice it, 
and spoke half apologetically. Come into the drawing room. It's always nice and cheerful in there with a big fire. I see to that. Anna won't be bothered with a lot of fires or have any help. And father and she don't seem to notice things as I do, as they both keep up their habit of wearing furs, acquired during severe winters in the Balkans and other such places, regardless of the fact that we are in England. And Anna has put away such a lot of Mr. Klimping's beautiful furniture and nice things in unused bedrooms with sheets over them, like dead bodies to save trouble and work. Oh, it all gives me the creeps, though I am accustomed to it, she concluded, leading the way to the drawing room. I love light and fires and lots of lovely things everywhere. I often feel that I was made for them, though I have had so little chance of having them so far. It was unconsciously pathetic. I caught a glimpse of Burgess's face with the sunlight across it. His eyes were fixed intently upon the beautiful girl, and it seemed to me that I could read both displeasure with the present state of things and the unspoken intention of doing all that lay in his power to give her the surroundings she craved for. I could not, however, help wondering, had things been otherwise, how Burgess would have felt and acted toward tenants who treated his intensely venerated ancestral home in such a careless and cavalier fashion, lacking not only artistic appreciation, but even common consideration. A few minutes later the door opened abruptly, and in came the saturnine old professor, crossing the room with his long characteristic stride, his strange eyes under their shaggy slanting brows, fixing upon each one of us in turn none too kindly, and looking through us half suspiciously. I took his hand with the long pointed fingers, and gripped it with apparent heartiness, looking him straight in the eyes. I have availed myself of your kind invitation to come and have a scientific chat with you, Professor, I said, and I trust that I have not come in an inconvenient time. Professor Wolf mastered his disinclination with an effort, and did his best to welcome me. I am delighted to meet anyone interested in my subjects, he replied. It is a rare in Sussex. Come into my room, and leave these young people to discuss the sort of things that interest them. He took me into the library, which looked as though it had not been dusted since his arrival. It was both musty and dusty, with the furniture all awry, odd tables of all periods collected from various parts of the house, and piled with open books, bundles of notes, specimens, and all the paraphernalia of a student and a bookworm. A small fire smoldered on the hearth, and he stirred it impatiently, and threw a couple of big logs on before throwing himself down on a big sofa, and curling himself up like a dog with his legs half under him in one corner, motioning to me to seat myself, as he drew up a great gray fur rug over the lower part of his long body. He was a most wonderful man, unpleasant as he was personally and abhorrent physically, and he had a rare and marvelous brain. I shall never forget that hour with him, sitting opposite to him, fascinated not only by his ceaseless talk upon recondite subjects, which were obviously everyday commonplaces to him, but by his extraordinary personality, which above all things I had come to study. And the only thing was that the one warred with the other and divided my attention, while he watched me the whole time intently, yet withal furtively and with shifty eyes, as I listened to the rough guttural sentences pouring from him like a scientific avalanche. I can hardly say whether I was glad or sorry when Dorothy tapped on the door and nervously announced that tea was ready. It broke the spell, but I had accomplished the real object of my visit, and my last lingering doubt, if any there had been, had vanished as to the inwardness of the strange genius with whom I had sat in such close proximity all alone in the fading light. 
a weird experience in the twentieth century for one who knew the horrible truth the whole time. Come, he said abruptly, as though the spell had been broken. We must go back to your friends, as they will anxious to be leaving before the light entirely departs. The drawing-room was bright and cheerful, a pleasant contrast which I welcomed with every fibre of my body. Even my intellect felt surcharged. I stood by Dorothy while she poured out the tea, the professor standing on the hearth-rug and talking intermittently to Burgess with his mouth full, as he greedily devoured sandwich after sandwich, a most unpleasant sight. "'I do not know whether you dainty English will care for my special sandwiches,' he remarked truculently. "'I have them made of raw meat. Some of our leading professors in Germany advocate them, and they are given to invalids as they are so strengthening and so easily—' He paused for an instant, for the word munching the while. "'What do you call assimilated? I find my brain works much better on them. Once you folk got over your silly ideas and prejudices, you would find that they are delicious.' much better than your dry, tough, scorched meat. I am teaching Dorothea to eat them. I looked at the girl a trifle anxiously. Yes, she said without affectation, and I hope you won't think it horrid of me, but I am quite beginning to like them, though they don't seem very dainty, and I have never eaten them in public. I have always looked at them from the scientific or medical point of view. I saw the professor's eyes fixed furtively upon her. Where is the flower that I gave you, Dorothea? he asked, across the room in a rough, angry voice. She put her hand instinctively to her breast and looked down. I, I must have lost it, she answered, flushing. You are very careless, began the old man with something that sounded very much like a snarl, and then he broke off, as though conscious of his visitors. One thing was certain in my mind, to my relief. At any rate, he was not suspicious, and never dreamt that perhaps people were even then hovering upon the fringe of his horrid secret. I turned to the girl, asking for a second cup of tea to cover any awkwardness, feeling that she was afraid of the old German, who is obviously an autocrat and a bit of a bully in his own household. Thank you for not giving me away, I said in a low voice, as Burgess began to speak up about sending one of the men down to tidy up. Is your name really Dorothea and not Dorothy? My father always calls me by the German form, perhaps not unnaturally, she answered but my mother always used to call me Dorothy. Your mother? I asked sympathetically. She died when I was quite a little girl. She answered very softly, as though not wishing to be overheard and nursing something very sacred to herself. I always like to call myself Dorothy and to be called Dorothy by my friends, as it reminds me of her. May I call you Dorothy? I asked upon impulse. If you care to, she answered, with a little look of friendly confidence, which was very much in my mind during the next few urgent, anxious days. I was glad and relieved when we found ourselves once more out in the open air, and I heard old Anna shoot the bolts and clank the chain behind us, though my heart was very heavy for the poor doomed girl inside, doomed unless by the grace of God she could be saved from a fate too hideous to contemplate, and I was not very talkative on the way home, as we hurried as well as we could through the dark wood, which had grown so strangely oppressive to me. When we reached the terrace, I drew a deep breath of relief and filled my lungs with the crisp, clean air. You are lucky to live up here on the hill, old chap, I said to Burgess, speaking from the bottom of my heart. But all the evening I was depressed, though I did my best to conceal it, 
and somehow I did not seem to be able to get the unpleasant odor of decay out of my nostrils. End of section 12